Is the development of owner-occupied housing on a massive scale achievable in blighted Opportunity Zone neighborhoods? First, you have to shock the system. Find out more next. Welcome to another exciting episode of the Opportunity Zones podcast, the weekly show where we interview Opportunity Zones professionals and experts from fund managers to tax advisors, from real estate developers to venture capitalists. If it impacts Opportunity Zones or the Opportunity Funds industry, we cover it here on the Opportunity Zones podcast. Welcome to the Opportunity Zones podcast. I'm your host, Jimmy Atkinson. Can Opportunity Zones facilitate the development of owner-occupied housing on a massive scale? Kansas City-based development firm NeighborBuilt thinks that they may have cracked the code. And joining me on the podcast today are NeighborBuilt's founders, Daniel Edwards and Dr. Ebony Edwards. Daniel is an architectural engineer, and Ebony has a doctorate in community psychology. They join us today from their home in Kansas City, Missouri. Daniel Ebony, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us. Yeah, absolutely. It's good to have you guys on the show. Uh, so first of all, just to start us off here, tell us about NeighborBuilt. What is it and which markets are you in specifically and, and what makes it different from other Opportunity Zone developers? Yeah, well, so NeighborBuilt was uh, really founded with the aha moment that um, urban core neighborhoods that are typically in cities and metropolitans around the country uh, do not know how to rebuild themselves, uh, which is why we have opportunity zones in the first place. And we wanted to create a system that would allow these urban core neighborhoods to, to actually have their own capacity to come in and rebuild, um, planting their neighborhoods with owner-occupied housing and surrounding that with supporting commercial amenities. Um, and I think what makes us different is that we actually target neighborhoods that have uh, that are adjacent to thriving uh, markets, but have typically been demolished by urban renewal, um, experienced mass depopulation, have had a highway that is kind of split through the neighborhood and community to separate either the north side from the south side or the east side from the west side. Uh, and we target these neighborhoods that have just really struggled to bounce back from uh, white flight, black flight out into the suburban communities and surroundings. And we come back in and we build a single family owner occupied housing at volume. And then we provide the supporting commercial amenities to support those new rooftops, all based on the identity of who the community was and who it wants to be when it grows up. So I think that's what, what really makes us different is the, uh, the focus on the owner-occupied nature of resetting neighborhoods. Good. And I believe that your first such development is in your hometown of, of Kansas City, Missouri. Is, is that correct? Yes, that's correct. Good. I'll, I'll ask you a little bit more about, about how that's going toward the end of the show. Uh, but first, I want to back up a minute and see if uh, you guys can give me a little bit more of your background story. Uh, maybe you can go into your personal backgrounds a little bit and, and tell me how NeighborBuilt came about and how it evolved out of Movement KC. Yeah, sure. Um, So actually, uh, we're both originally from Kansas City as well. Um, Grew up not too far from the neighborhood where we're developing. And Daniel actually went to high school in this neighborhood. And so it was very intimate with the neighborhood. I had gone away for undergrad and grad school. And he got me to move back to Kansas City from Chicago, where I had everything at my fingertips. And basically um, took me house shopping and 
told me, knowing kind of that precedent that Chicago had set, that he would find me a neighborhood that was diverse, that had um, downtown views, that had a running path and all of these things. And we went to the neighborhood where he went to high school at, where he always wanted to live, drove around and basically couldn't find a house. Found one house on a block where there were no other houses on the block and tried to rehab that property, but it was too expensive to get a loan on. And so at that point, we um, realized that it was going to be unfeasible to develop one home in the neighborhood. And our next kind of path of action was to find people that were interested also in building a home in the neighborhood with us so that we could make um, it justifiable really to banks at that point. And that's basically how Movement KC was was started, really. Um, it was the idea that in order to make building in neighborhoods that have a lot of vacancy, um, in order to really be able to provide neighborhood amenities and make those, again, justifiable for the neighborhood, that we need to uh, find people who have the same vision, that want to see change happen in neighborhoods, in cities, where there's often a lot of disparity um, in real estate and therefore in um, amenities and, and services such as schools um, in, in cities. And um, so, oh, and with that, we uh, were able around that time to also then acquire um, a kind of a mass amount of property to make that possible. And so we actually found some land landowners in the neighborhood, uh, acquired the land, and started Movement KC with this idea and um, really started to look for people who, again, had the same vision and, and wanted to see a change um, and recognize that they could uh, kind of partner to make this happen through homeownership. Good. I want to ask you more about homeownership in a couple minutes here. Uh, but first, I want to talk about just opportunity zones in, in general. Daniel, when, when we spoke on the phone a few weeks ago, you said something that really captured my attention. Uh, you said something along the lines of, of this, that the systems that are designed for real estate development instantly fail the second they come into contact with opportunity zones. What did you mean by that? And how can we turn this around and ensure that opportunity zones benefit local residents? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, real estate development, anybody who's been in the industry knows that it is a machine. Um, it's based on a solid pro forma and a good execution vehicle. Um, the pro forma instantly fails and the execution vehicle instantly breaks down the second that you cross over into blighted distress census tracks, which is where these opportunity zones are located. Um, the system is designed, when I say the system, that is <clears throat> the banking system, that includes developers, builders, uh, suppliers, manufacturers, uh, subcontractors. As construction is picking up, uh, the demand for work is very high. And so urban core communities that are in blighted, distressed neighborhoods uh, don't have the same attraction for developers as uh, a market rate neighborhood that could be literally six blocks away, but on the other side of a highway in our case. Banks also consider our projects high risk. 
And, and so when you cross over into these neighborhoods and the, the high risk nature of a deal is really the way that a bank can justify saying that, hey, this is a really great project. We really love what's happening, but it's high risk for us. And I mean, we've, we've been across that multiple times, but we've also seen that in every city that we've gone to, whether it's the south side of Chicago or whether it's Memphis, Tennessee or Jackson, Mississippi or anywhere across the nation where there's uh, an urban core population in opportunity zones. Th- this is the reason why they have not been rebuilt. Uh, so what we have decided to do is really focus more so on the execution uh, apparatus to rebuild opportunity zones and not necessarily the funding. There's always money and there's also always resources. Um, that was one of the big things. I just spent a week out in Montana uh, with a, a group of opportunity zone uh, champions around the country. And most of the conversation there was about funding, funding, funding. Uh, Let's talk about this fund. Most of the conversations in Kansas City have been about the funds, the investors. Uh, Very rarely has that conversation actually gotten down to the ground level of, well, who's executing these deals once we have the fund available? And then how are are those deals actually going to benefit the residents at the local level? So we we realized that uh, the best way to... Uh, wealth for any person um, historically has always been through home ownership. And these neighborhoods where we are going into, uh, they don't have the execution vehicle to actually create the home ownership that's required. So our focus for neighbor built has really been the vertical integration of that execution platform uh, that simplifies. Uh, we, re- we really have broadened in. Um, I've worked for the top 25 GC in the nation. Um, our business partner has been with the top 25, three, seven GCs in the nation. Uh, and so what we've done is we've taken the construction practices that we've, we've, uh, we've gained on the commercial level and we're just applying them to single family at a volume scale. So I think that we are able to bring in the equity and the wealth back into neighborhoods through, through the families and through their, their actual home ownership. And that ends up sparking out additional wealth throughout the neighborhood, the economy, and throughout the city. So really focusing on the the, the system approach to uh, outside of just the funding, how do we make sure that everything else is in alignment from banking to contractors to subcontractors to suppliers and, and everything down that line? Yeah, that's a huge challenge um, for, for Opportunity Zones development. You know, the possibly the, the Opportunity Zone neighborhoods that need this type of development the most, it's obviously the, the hardest to start the, the ball rolling on, I, I suppose, just because the, the systems in place just aren't designed to handle that amount of economic distress. So uh, yeah, it's definitely, definitely a huge challenge uh, that, that you're facing there. Yeah. And I think the reason why uh, you had mentioned in the intro that we we're, We've cracked the code on this. I think one of the big things that is is different from us and most developers is that Ebony and I have put our family on the line in this process. So, uh, meaning that we are uh, we are closing on our first round of houses right now, and our family is one of the first rooftops to go into this neighborhood that we're developing. So, for us, it's not uh, it's not us being. Um, an outside developer going into a neighborhood, doing something to a community. 
we wanted to be a part of the community that we wanted to rebuild, that we grew up in. Uh, and because our family has been put on the line um, and we've been all in on that area, it, it really helps us to to really think about this holistically of like what kind of neighborhood will we want to see? Um, how do we build trust with residents around us? How do we build trust with uh, contractors, developers, suppliers, manufacturers? Because we want to make sure that the, our home quality is just as great as our next door neighbors and, and, and surrounding us as well. So. I think that's why we we work to crack the code is that we're we're actually putting our our own family on the line and so our our patience in working in opportunity zones these distressed census tracts has just been uh, I guess our patience is is just it's been patience <laughs> in in the truest sense of the word. So. Yeah, absolutely. No, you guys are not standing back at a distance watching this happen. You're right in the middle of it, and and your lifestyle is at stake here. So you definitely have quite a bit of skin in the game, so to speak. Uh, I want to talk about the the housing affordability crisis that's affecting much of the country. Uh, so a, a two-part question for you, actually. One, first of all, can you characterize the housing deficit? And perhaps you can tell us a little bit about your local market of, of Kansas City. And then following up to that, part two of the question is, how does neighbor built, how does the neighbor-built model address that shortfall? Yeah, so... Um... Locally, I mean, affordability is a crisis nationally, um, and uh, I think that a lot of the attention even towards opportunity zones has gone to the top 5% uh, performing opportunity zones. So if there's, um, we're talking about opportunity zones and markets that are pretty much already thriving and successful, they just now have a little bit better incentive, but they're, there's there's 95% of the rest of the country that has opportunity zones that are, are just regular everyday type neighborhoods and communities. Uh, and so in those neighborhoods and communities like Kansas City, uh, we are currently experiencing a 17,000 house deficit of existing Kansas City residents that need homes. Um, this study was just put out in 2018. So that's seven, 17,000 houses that are required for existing residents, not including new people who would be moving into Kansas City. And I think the issue that uh, when we think about affordability um, and opportunity zones, I, I think that the, the affordable housing, the, the term or phrase affordable housing has experienced a negative connotation of low-income tax credit projects or uh, poor neighborhoods. But in our case, uh, we need 10,000 homes of buyers that are at the, the AMI level or the workforce housing level. Um, we need 17,000 homes of buyers that are uh, at the extreme poverty level. So that, that 10,000 home mark of the buyers at market rate to affordability, there's a huge opportunity for the, the entry starter home buyer. And we have no one in Kansas City to address that need. So NeighborBuilt has really positioned ourselves as the, the, the entry level uh, to the entry level and above um, home volume home builder. Uh, the average new construction cost in Kansas City right now is only attainable to the top third earners of employees in Kansas City. And so that leaves out our school teachers, our city workers, our everyday uh, nurses and, and just regular workforce. Uh, 
And all of the volume builders that we have in Kansas City have not come into the urban core because, again, it's the system doesn't work in the urban core for those builders. So we figured that if neighbor built can be the high volume uh, home builder for the entry level price points um, up to uh, we, we really haven't put a cap on the amount that buyers could do, but really just trying to really build the neighborhood around community around an, uh, an attainable price point. Uh, so we, we, we really have kind of scrapped the word affordable housing and we went to attainable housing. And for us, attainable housing is really whatever buyers can afford to purchase at is what we should be able to build housing at. And we have switched from, um, we've really focused more on affordable living as opposed to affordable housing. And so affordable living for us is how can we get house housing costs to be at with, with utilities included at 25% of a buyer's take home pay. And because we are building at volume, because we are doing things and we've almost, we really, we haven't engineered our homes or we're not manufacturing our homes, but we've manufactured our process and how we approach development. Um, we're able to streamline and cut costs so drastically that instead of us being at an average price point of three seventy five for the Kansas City market, we're actually at two twenty five for that that perfect entry home sweet spot for most of Kansas City buyers. Well, that's great. I want to drill down into that a little bit more. That housing attainability. You mentioned that you're able to get down to two twenty five thousand, but can, can you go into a little bit more detail there? How exactly are you able to get your costs down? Uh, you know, part of what makes your model so powerful is that it is scalable, and I understand you are able to achieve some economies of scale when when you're when you're building it at huge volumes. Um, maybe you can talk a little bit about the types of volumes that you're seeing and and exactly how you're able to get your costs down. I'd, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, so typically when we uh, approach communities in urban core neighborhoods, uh, most most uh, city officials and Developers are looking for onesie twosie projects of here. Let's just do this one house or this one rehab. When Ebony mentioned earlier that we tried to purchase that home uh, and it was too expensive to rehab, it was it wasn't too expensive for us to rehab. It was just that there were no supporting comps around it to support that type of that scale of rehab. So the bank again considered that as a high risk nature because it was a onesie twosie project in the middle of an urban core blighted neighborhood. So what we've done is that we we acquire uh, real estate at a volume scale, so that gets our costs down. Um, we partner with local government entities uh, in order to uh, get tax abatements on property, so we are able to keep the costs low um, and also the holding costs. Um, we break ground really in sequence, so just as an assembly line for a car manufacturer would break or would, would build we do the same exact thing with our lots. Um, our lots are side by side. We break ground in cohorts. Um, we actually recruit, recruit our buyers in cohorts, which is most, which is drastically different than most other developers that we've seen. Uh, so our, our cohorts, and I'll let Ebony speak uh, a lot more to that, um, but we're able to recruit our buyers in bulk. We're able to procure our materials in bulk. Uh, our contractors are, instead of them pouring a onesie, twosie foundation, they are doing 10 foundations at a time. Um, so they're able to keep all of their crews on board. They're able to keep all their equipment on board. So it's really, like I said before, like it, it's more so us just manufacturing our process 
uh, using the same exact tactics that we would use at these top 25 GC construction firms and just applying it to a, a um, to an industry, the single family housing industry in a different way, because, it, you know, single family housing has always been done this way for all this time. So um, over the last four years, we scoured the country to find easy to use, easy buildable materials that are long term sustainable. So our homes actually end up being a net zero ready out the box um, and they're able to be erected in five days. Uh, because we use technology to streamline all of our processes. Good. So I want to hear more about, um, and I think I'll address Ebony now, I want to hear more about the development of the community of the of the neighborhood in, in terms of the people that you're bringing in. Daniel, you mentioned that you recruit your buyers in cohorts. Can Can you explain that process for us a little bit more, Ebony, and, and what goes into, into uh, doing that? Yeah, it's actually something that kind of organically happened when we think about, you know, how companies, I guess, are infused with with uh, founders' personalities. I think this is something that just was organic for us is going back to what I was saying earlier about when we needed to find buyers to uh, build homes with us in the neighborhood. We just, you know, organically started doing having dinners, having people over, um, having events getting together with people and having playdates when there were kids involved. Um, we're just doing kind of really normal things to get to know one another in order to build community that actually ended up, uh, I think, increasing trust and establishing relationship between one another. Um, people that had a lot of questions about moving into the neighborhood were able to ask those questions in a circle of people that they trust and feel comfortable doing that. And so um, that's actually become a strategy for us now going forward is um, having these social experiences, again, that are as, can be as intimate as dinner parties and uh, small gatherings to we've done some kind of bigger meetings. And in this particular neighborhood, Daniel mentioned that we approach neighborhoods thinking about the identity of the neighborhood and our neighborhood where we're developing actually has a, it actually has a very rich jazz history in that um for example the late night jam session actually was founded in our neighborhood at the mutual musicians foundation which is the oldest jazz house in the country um, it was home to the first colored um, musicians union uh, that was acknowledged by the American Federation of Musicians. Um, just some really cool jazz history in our neighborhood. And we actually, Kansas City claims jazz, if you don't know that already. And so we do swing live jazz. Well, swing jazz, but it's yes. Okay. Swing jazz it is. Um, so we do live events as well in the neighborhood and, and really kind of um, talk about what we're doing through that venue as well. And so it's been really, like I said, good strategy for us to recruit buyers and people who just want to make a difference in the neighborhood and, and add to what's going on, maybe business owners, in this particular case, musicians who are looking for a space to create and also to play and show off their talents. Um, and so that has really been really uh, important for our buyers, I think, to have that community before actually then building in the neighborhood and becoming a community. 
Um, and so we do, we target around 10 to uh, 15 people at a time that we're, that we're building for bulk in. And so um, another thing that we do as well is to have gatherings in the neighborhood. And so there may be people who don't have that kind of exposure to the neighborhood exactly, but it's also a way for us to um, kind of bring together people who are interested in moving into the neighborhood with people who currently live in the neighborhood. And with my background, I'm really um, interested in developing community between the existing residents in the neighborhood and people who are moving into the neighborhood and understanding how can we use real estate and and kind of the increase in population and density and diversity that comes with uh, new home buyers to uh, increase the quality of life in the neighborhood. And I think a major way that we do that is through creating um, a community. And, you know, I think that in a lot of ways needs to be facilitated. We can't just expect for it to happen. And so that's some of the other work of Movement KC is making sure that Again, those relationships um, establish and happen. And um, over time, hopefully, um, we have some plans to see, you know, some resource sharing as well between neighbors. Good. And I, I can certainly understand how that could work in a small community that you're a part of, you know, with 10 to 15 households. But how do you scale that nationally? Yeah, so so 10 to 15 households is a uh, uh, Really, what uh, that that number is not as random as just throwing on a number of ten to fifteen. Uh, we can typically fit ten to fifteen rooftops on half of a block, and so when you think about who are you going to live the rest of your life around, or the next five to seven years around, you really want to have more intimate knowledge of who those people are before uh, you get there. So even when we scale this project. Um, we are looking at, uh, because we're targeting neighborhoods that have experienced mass uh, demolition from either urban renewal or just mass uh, slum clearance or uh, anything of that nature, even targeting neighborhoods that have experienced mass uh, devastation from natural disasters as well. What we are doing is targeting a, a thousand rooftops per neighborhood. Um and uh, so when we think about scaling, it, for us, we still would break ground or we still would recruit our cohorts in that, that 10 to 20 range because those are still the people that, that are going to be there. It's just that instead of us breaking ground on um, a cohort of 20 uh, every two months or three months, we're now breaking co ground on a cohort of 20 every two to three weeks. And so in order for us to really hit our targets, um, that's where, that's how you scale. Um, that's really how we, we, the, the big idea for this is, uh, we, we kind of knew this was a long-term vision and, um, we were approached by Bruce Katz and Bruce Katz came to KC and, and told us that if we could figure out this model, that this would be outrageously amazing for a scalable product. So, yeah, I want to hear more about, about that. When did you first discover the Opportunity Zones program, first of all, and, and when did you know that you had some serious traction with your neighbor-built model? You mentioned Bruce Katz. He, he helped author Accelerator for America's Opportunity Zone Investment Prospectus Guide. He took notice of you a few months back, it sounds like. I mean, that must have been an incredibly good sign for you guys. Can you tell us a little bit more about, about that story, how that 
how that unfolded? Yeah, so um, opportunity zones, you know, we, we didn't realize that we were an opportunity zone uh, when, when the legislation first came out. Uh, we had been working on the deal. Um, we had just assembled our land uh, shortly, shortly before the legislation came out. Um, and so we, we had already had this plan in play. We just were more of a, hey, let's recruit our friends and family to come be our neighbors. Uh, and then uh, Kansas City started working on its citywide investor prospectus. Uh, Bruce Katz, Ross Baird uh, both came here to Kansas City to really try to champion Kansas City down a pathway of creating a process that was uh, uh, inclusive to developers in, in all communities. Um, and Bruce Katz actually came out to visit our site in mid-March. Um, he did a site walkthrough, loved the topography, also loved the, the fact that it was it's really just vacant land. So we're, we're talking about several hundred of acres of vacant land within a minute and a half of our central downtown business district that has no one to come in to develop it. And uh, Bruce being um, uh, just so politically involved in the housing market or in the housing industry politically uh, saw that if we crack the code, um, that we have really have the scalable model to rebuild these urban core neighborhoods demolished by urban renewal across the country and listed off, you know, 10 or 15 cities just right there in front of us saying like, these people need you, these people need you. Um, Bruce then a week later invited us out to the uh, Opportunity Zone Summit for that Accelerator for America put on with Mayor Garcetti out in, out, out in Palo Alto. Uh, we were able to pitch to the room and investors. And that pitch for us was really instead of Instead of funding a single site deal, invest in us as a real estate opportunity zone business, and we will build out the new system that will supply every other or every other deal in these urban core communities. So, really, investing in the vertical vertical integration of that execution platform, as opposed to the the deal by deal scenario. Um, and since then, I mean, Bruce has invited us across the country. We have been invited to eight cities, um, the state of Massachusetts to do, to bring housing. Um, everyone is waiting for us to prove the model here in KC and they have signed up because there, there's no, uh, volume single family builders that are actually addressing this need in this, op in, in opportunity zones. Yeah. I understand you're still in the early stages. How far along are you with that model in Kansas city? So we, we're closing on our first round and we should be breaking ground in the next 40 to 45 days. So the bank is just in due diligence process, uh, order, ordering land appraisals. Uh, we are ready to go. We are shovel ready. Our buyers are ready. Um, that's one of the other big things that we do as a developer. Um, because these deals are so high risk, we, we have also found it to be really helpful on our end that all of our buyers are pre-qualified. So all of our homes are actually pre-sold before we even touch dirt. Uh, so that eliminates all the risk. Even in our new cohorts, as we start to, uh, to recruit uh, at volume, um, all of our buyers, the way that we will take them in is based on who can get pre-approved um, and who's ready to go at that point in time, because we, we, we're not doing any speculative housing developments. 
So that way it de-risks the investment for investors, it de-risks the investment for the banks, and it, it, it really de-risks our investment of time and energy on our end to make sure that we're just not um, doing speculative housing. Uh, Kansas City, we have that that option of having 17,000 home buyers that need a house. Um, and so uh, it, it's been really easy for us to 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 use that model of pre-selling everything um, because buyers are just hungry to be stable and plant it in their own space. Uh, good. So it sounds like you're you're pretty far along there, and and you're just you're you're ready to break ground pretty soon. What have been some of your biggest challenges so far? Uh, well, so one of the biggest challenges which other communities may experience, um, you know, I I, I think that. Uh, it's been pretty eye-opening to look at urban core opportunity zones. My wife and I, we're, we're African-American. Um, the neighborhoods that we have targeted typically have been neighborhoods that have been historically African-American, which are, you know, have been separated by either a highway system or, again, most of the population has left. Uh, we are not trying to build African-American-only communities, but uh, we just know the nature of where these, this real estate is located. It's just th- those are just the communities that we are targeting. But in these neighborhoods, uh, I think one of the biggest challenges that we were not aware of before we started this project was territory. And um, in market rate communities, market rate communities are driven by capital by 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 a capital market system. Uh, if you have a strong market, you can bring in money, the deal gets done. Again, the system works flawless, flawlessly in thriving market rate communities. When you come over to um, blighted uh, urban core, historically severely distressed communities, uh, you run into territories and there are people who have you know, staked their territories. They've been working on these deals for 20 or 30 years trying to get a project off the ground, but they never had buyers or they never really had the experience that they needed in the real estate development side. So I think one of our biggest hurdles, at least locally in the Kansas City market, has been trying to deal with the uh, the territorial nature of uh, established organizations and not necessarily even established real estate development organizations, but just established organizations who have kind of had the the stronghold on the community. So. I think locally, that's kind of been our, that's probably been our, our biggest issue. Um, and then those territories, you know, also they're well connected into the established system of banks and, and everything like that. So it's really trying to work around the, the, the system to just go rebuild neighborhoods. Yeah, I'd add um, that there have been a lot of uh, people um, that have access to resources, I, I'd say, that want us to just build one home or just build two homes. And, you know, we say that that's impossible. There, there's no way to hit this attainable housing, attainable living mark that we talked about earlier if we were to approach it like that. So, in, in fact, we actually need to develop more than just one house at a time. And, you know, for us, we have a strategy to accomplish that. Yeah, the onesie, the onesie twosies approach. Um, it really, it really, it, those are the things that really kill deals um, because there's there will be cost overruns, there will be unknowns, there will be things that happen. 
Uh, and the second that you move to a onesie twosie approach, you have completely blown the budget of someone who may not be able to afford an extra seventy thousand uh, dollar increase um, on their on their property. So, for instance, I, I seventy thousand dollars again is not a random number. But when you come into these urban core blighted communities that have been left, uh, one of the the things that you need is to get the participation from public dollars as well to go back in and redo the streets, to redo the sidewalks, to redo the curbs, to redo all the surrounding infrastructure. So that that budget is not attached to each of our buyers. So if we were to attach that budget to redo the streets and curbs and sidewalks to a buyer who can only afford two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars we just put that buyer's cost literally at three hundred thousand dollars and it's no longer an affordable home for them or an attainable home for them um an affordable house in the kansas city market would be uh just for reference would be about 125 to 130 if we were talking about 80 percent area median income so a house at 225 is not a it's not necessarily a uh it's not a, the most expensive house in the world, but it is still market rate for the for the local community. So, um, one of the that was also the the biggest hurdle that we have come across uh, is getting those public dollars to actually uh, convert over in Kansas City. Uh, we did receive some federal dollars uh, through the city uh, that allowed us to to address portions of the infrastructure and housing. Um, it's just that those funds haven't been released to the project. And so that's that that has put a delay on the project that we weren't expecting coming into this. Um, so, yeah, I think it, it's it's that combination of the territories, the uh, the onesie twosie approach and really the public the public partnership that is that is 100 percent required in these targeted neighborhoods um, to where we can. Uh, you know, really work with public institutions and governments to, uh, if they could put in, you know, fifteen to twenty thousand dollars per house in order just to clear up the streets and sidewalks that these buyers are wanting to come back to, um, that changes the entire dynamic of the project. So, right, yeah, your model takes advantage of economies of scale, and if you're only building one or two homes at a time, you can't achieve that, and and you can't get the city to buy into fixing up the infrastructure. So that makes perfect sense. And and then, you know, in a way, your your housing model, particularly where it's located, is, you know, requires a bit of a paradigm shift, which can be slow moving at some times. Um, particularly getting getting some of these slow moving institutions, banking institutions, et cetera, on board. So I that that's what it sounds like have been your biggest challenges so far. Yeah, and, and I think Bruce Bruce Katz is always uh, when he when he when he came to our site, he said that you guys have the opportunity to shock the system, and uh, the way that when it, when he says shock the system, like the system just needs to be uh, it needs to be shaken up, and I think that where we are at today, where we where you know Kansas City or you know the history of our country has not been at. Uh, prior to now is that we have a growing generation of millennial home buyers that are ready to step into home ownership and they need a place to live. Um, I don't think that that was the case, uh, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, it wasn't the case four years ago when we started this project, but uh, the millennial home buyer market 
is a huge market that is untapped. And um, I think that we have the ability to, to disrupt the housing system by really just targeting a different demographic of people who care about sustainability, uh, who care about technology, who care about uh, really, you know, community, um, who, who, don't re- who don't necessarily need uh, the huge mega mansion home but can fit into a home that is more the size of homes of how they used to be and really, you know, uh, partner community with the lifestyle. Uh, so I think that that's where the biggest, the biggest uh, difference is, is that we, we have access to that market. So by us shocking the system is really going out to get, you know, a hundred or 200 of these buyers pre-approved that are ready to go. And that really gives comfort back to the bank and to the other systems that say like, okay, well, now there's a market here. Now we can go ahead and move forward with this deal. So I think what, what we're really after is trying to create something that does shock the system, that shocks the communities, um, but is also healthy for everything around it as well. Right, right. So what is your long-term vision for NeighborBuilt? I mean, if all goes according to plan, what do you see NeighborBuilt looking like a few years down the road here? How many rooftops are you going to put up around the country? Yeah. So uh, long-term, short-term, regardless of long-term or short-term, we are still going to start with our first starter block. We are going to build 50 single family rooftops on one single block here in Kansas City. Uh, We are using that block to uh, solidify all of our practices, designs, everything of that nature. Uh, And then we are scaling rapidly in order to meet this demand across the country. Uh, we will scale in Kansas City. So we will go from 50 homes in year one to 1,000 homes in year two. Uh, in year three, we will scale up to 6,000 homes. Uh, and then we will just continue to build and ship across the country. Um, we are right now in the process of acquiring a local building material supply chain uh, in order or a building material uh, supply company. So that way we can control our own supply chain. Um, that's, that building material company is located on a rail spur. So we will be able to ship nationally. So our goal is that Kansas City will become the uh, local headquarters for about a five hour radius that is supplying these volume homes around the country and products and materials. Um, we have looked for uh, not again, I don't want to use. Well, we, we found a. Um, panelized system that allows us to erect our homes in four days. Uh, so we believe that through uh, through this housing development, we're actually able to create you know jobs and career paths for local residents in these communities as well. Um, we've identified 13 different workforce career training paths that we can take uh, communities and people on. Um, that are all within the built space. So for us, we I think we really want to scale to be a national home builder, but also creating that national opportunity for uh, a thriving economy through workforce. Um, I think that the, the numbers say, uh, the research says, the data says that uh, 100 single family homes creates more than two and a half times the same impact from the financial side for the actual investor or developer, all the way down to the amount of jobs that it creates. Um, 
than a 100, 100 unit multifamily deal. And so we figured that if we're creating a thousand or six thousand homes in a community or in a in a local region, we're now able to create thousands of jobs that has an economic ripple effect back on that neighborhood and community long term. So yeah, I would say our goal for us is to become one of the high volume home builders around the country, uh, based out of Kansas City, that we're able to to really address these neighborhoods that have been overlooked for, you know, half a century at this point in time. Yeah, it's an incredible model you guys have, an incredible vision, and I wish you nothing but the best going forward. Before we go, can you tell our listeners where they can go to learn more about you and NeighborBuilt? NeighborBuilt.com. Sounds good. Well, uh, for our listeners, I'll have show notes for today's episode on the Opportunity Zones database website. You can find those show notes at OpportunityDB.com slash podcast, and you'll find links to all of the resources that Daniel, Ebony, and I discussed on today's show, and I'll be sure to have a link to neighborbuilt.com so you can look into their model and, and uh, find out more about Daniel and Ebony um, on that website. Daniel, Ebony, thanks for coming on today. I appreciate our chat. Good talking with you guys, and I hope to hear from you again soon. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jimmy. That's it for our show today. A huge thank you to you, our listener. If you liked this episode, please rate and review us on iTunes. The Opportunity Zones podcast is produced by the Opportunity Database. Visit OpportunityDB.com to learn more about Opportunity Zones and Opportunity Zone Fund investing. You can learn how to subscribe to this podcast and read more about today's guest in the show notes by visiting OpportunityDB.com slash podcast. And we'll be back soon with another episode.